People of God, this is the word of the true and living God. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask you to now help me as I preach and help your people as they hear your word. And we come to this verse, a special verse, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see its importance, its significance, understand it rightly, and we pray, Lord, that you would um, help us to apply it in our lives as we ought. So, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Someone were to ask you, why do you worship the way you worship in your church? Why does Princeton do what she does when we gather for worship? You know, a lot of churches do things differently, don't they? And let's be honest, sometimes it might seem like those ways are much more entertaining than the ways we do things here at Princeton. A lot more lively, a lot more engaging perhaps, some might say. Why do you do what you do in worship? Does God's Word clearly tell us what we should do in worship? Does it spell it out for us? Does Scripture give a defined, standardized approach to worship that should be expected of every Christian church? Or is it just simply left up to our own discretion and, and preference as to what we should do in worship? Well, I'm sure you know where I'm going to go with that. I'm sure you know what we believe is the accurate answer. We would say absolutely yes. God has given us a clear standardized approach to how worship should look, generally speaking, with some slight variations that are permissible. But God has given us a way to worship. He's given us a liturgy. He's given us something that we should have in place in every Christian worship service, no matter what denomination, no matter whether you're Baptist or Presbyterian or whatever. This is the way a Christian worship service should look, and it's found right here in verse 42. You've probably heard me speak about this uh, principle of worship called the regulative principle. Some of you have heard this phrase. If you've not heard this phrase, it's simply a phrase that says that God regulates how He wants the worship of God's church to be. He's told us how He wants His church to be regulated. The regulative principle of worship is that which says that we are not allowed to worship in any way other than what God has decreed in His Scripture. Now, often we'll see in, the, in that realm of, of teaching, we go to Leviticus 10 right away. Leviticus 10 is the, is the negative way in which that's taught. You see what happens when we get creative in worship. You see Nadab and Abihu raising up uh, incense to God that wasn't, remember, commanded. God didn't tell them to do it. And what happened? God... Turn them to ashes. 
So we see in Leviticus 10, there's an argument that says, well, you know, this is, this is what happens when you get created. But where, where's the positive argument? Now, in the Old Testament, it's really easy to see. God was plainly, clearly laid out in the, in the, in the, the temple, in the, in the sacrificial system, and all that, that, that was there. That's a very clear way that it was laid out for the people to worship. But what about the New Covenant? I'm going to argue today that Acts chapter 2, verse 42, gives us a very clear if not simple, in a very brief but very clear and sufficient liturgy for every single church to employ when we worship God. The context, uh, you look at chapter 2 of Acts, beginning in verse 37, we see the, 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 the result of Peter's great sermon, Peter preaching Christ to these Jewish uh, believers in, or these Jewish uh, worshipers in Jerusalem. And of course, they hear this great sermon and they ask him immediately, after being cut to the heart, what shall we do to be saved? We see that. And then, of course, Peter gives them this wonderful explanation of what we should do to be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Be baptized for the remission of your sins. In other words, take the sign of the covenant. And, and he goes on. And, and keep yourselves from, from corruption in the world. Uh, but here, as we come to this uh, end of that part, you notice in verse 41, we see that that day were added 3,000 souls. Those people are the people that are spoken of here in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and so forth. So those 3,000 new converts are now shown in Acts by Luke to be worshipers. They go from conversion... And now, they sh- and now Luke has given us a description of what it was that this, communi- this early church was like. Verses 42 through 47 is a description of the typical week in the life of that early church. And he begins where we ought to begin. He begins with a description of how they worshipped. Verse 42. Verses 43 through the first part of verse 47 describes what sort of a community they were what they were doing the other six days. And then the last part of verse 47 describes the result of that. That powerful change of life, that transformative change in that community created a powerful evangelistic force. And we saw that God blessed them in their witness. Blessed them as a transformed community, a Christ-like community that became a powerful witness. So what we're going to see is worship transforms our community. And our community that is transformed to look more and more like Jesus becomes a powerful witness, a powerful uh, evangelizing force. So we're going to see that witness, our witness, you might say our, our numerical growth relies upon our spiritual growth. And that only begins in worship. Worship is the fuel for everything that happens in the life of the church. So that's where we're going to go. That's sort of the roadmap of where we're going to go this week and God willing next week. But the first thing is first, we need to look at this verse and and understand what it's teaching us. Uh, Look at there are four elements here. We're going to call them elements, distinct elements of worship. These liturgical elements are the the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Each of them have the definite article before them. So a a little bit of detail here is important. The definite article before each one tells us there's something particular about them. They're categories. 
There are definite categories. There are definite um, um, sort of overarching ideas or things that are happening in worship. And so that's important to note. Also, I want to point out too, what we're seeing here, someone might say, well, that's just the early church. You know, that was what they did. Now we live in the 21st century. I want to argue here, Acts is not just giving us descriptions. They're laying down prescriptions. They're not just telling us how they did it. They're telling us how we ought to do it. Now there's some caveats to that. But here, this is a, this is a, a principle laid down for us. How the church should worship. So, as we look at this, what I want to argue is Acts 2.42-47 through 47 is a blueprint. A blueprint for church and church growth. Both spiritual and numeric. This is a, a verse that, these are a set of verses that I personally um, might as well have placarded on my mind and heart as a minister because this is the philosophy of ministry that drives everything I do as a minister. This is when I look about the big picture of how the church should be run. These verses are the very first place that comes to mind. So when we think about how Princeton Church is run, you need to know that from the very beginning, since at least I've been here, that has been the driving force that has, that has informed everything we do. The approach to everything we do is, is, is actually these, these verses. So, I can't tell you how, I can't stress enough how important they are to us in the life of this church and should be in the life of every church. So I want you to really get in your mind firmly what's going on here and how this should be employed by our leadership in the churches. Alright, so the main idea is this. Through the early church's practice, God reveals the elements of divinely ordained worship. Or also known as the means of grace. Means of grace. The first is the word. Very simply, the word. The apostles' teaching here. Again, the definite article precedes the apostles' teaching. This is the authoritative ministry of the word. Now, the apostles were Christ's prophetic spokesmen, weren't they? They were were the voice for Jesus during those early days. Um, especially prior to the completion of the whole canon of Scripture. At that time, Scripture was being written. It wasn't complete. So the apostles were very necessary there to be the authoritative um, mouthpieces of Jesus Christ. So Christ was speaking directly through those apostolic servants. And he continued to do so until the last apostle died and the final book of the canon was complete, which was, of course, John and his book, The Revelation. But until that time, during that that unique time, that apostolic era, there were some some unique things happening there, and one of which was that they were continuing to give prophetic utterance directly from their mouths until it was all inscripturated. Now... Since the uh, Bible has been written, the whole will of God, the, the revealed will of God as we know it and as we receive it has been inscripturated and it is set for us. We no longer need the apostles. That's why there are no more apostles. When the Bible was finished, the apostles moved off the scene. We have no more uh, continuing revelation. It's been done. So... I want to argue here, what Luke is laying down for us, what he wants us to understand and consider, is that this phrase, the apostles' teaching, doesn't necessitate any more actual apostles. We have the apostles' teaching right here. In fact, it's Christ's teaching. So the apostles' teaching was Christ's word, 
Christ's word has been inscripturated. It's, fin- it's finished. It's complete. And so now we have not only in the 27 books of the New Testament and the total 66 books of the whole Bible, we have the will of Christ. We have the teaching of Christ set for us. And so here, teaching is what I want to argue is a broad term. Here, teaching involves everything in which the word is used in our worship services. And we basically use the word in everything. And so the apostles' teaching informs everything we do. We don't do anything in the church, particularly in worship, apart from the word of God. And so what what do we have? We have, first of all, the preaching of the word. That's easy. We have times of teaching. You know, we we have times when we open up the the confession of faith and we teach from the scripture. Those those are uh, uh, orthodox teachings. We have affirmation of faith. We have a call to worship, which uses the Bible. We have uh, a benediction at the end, which uses the Bible. We have an, uh, an assurance of pardon, which always uses the Bible. What do we have from start to finish in our worship services? Scripture. The Bible. The Word of God. This is an element that is absolutely essential to the life and the health of the body of, the, of, of Christ. Why? Because it's Jesus speaking through it to you. In these providential times in, a, in which a text is selected and a, and a sermon is chosen and the words are there, providentially chosen by Christ, Christ wants you today to hear this word. He wants you to hear that benediction. He wants you to hear that call to worship. He wants you to hear this text shared. It's all preordained, arranged by Him, and He wants the word to come to your heart, and He wants you to receive it as such. So again, this element of the apostles' teaching, understand this is Christ's teaching, and it's through the Scriptures. You know, and, and this brings us also to a great lament as well, because how many churches minimize the Bible when it ought to be maximized? It pushes aside the Bible when it ought to be front and center. Now this isn't to look down our noses at others, but... It is a great tragedy and it is a great shame and it is a great hurt to the church when the Bible isn't front and center and when the Bible is not um, brought out for God's people. So, there's something I wanted to point out here that this is probably a good time to do it. This word devoted. It says, and they, and that is those 3,000 new converts, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That word devoted is a word that means continually, habitually, perpetually. That is a religious word. That is a, that is a word that describes what they were committed to doing. So this wasn't just sort of a, you know, occasional thing. This wasn't just something they, they did when they felt like it. They did this week after week, every single day. And what I want to argue here is what we're looking at in verse 42 is a typical worship service on the Lord's Day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The church should be devoted to the Word of God. In 2 Timothy, we see Paul instructing his protege. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse, uh, verse uh, 16. If you want to turn there, you can.
And there we see Paul, uh, he is showing us the importance of the word there. I just thought this would be a helpful passage. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Every single good work, everything that the minister is called to do requires what? Knowledge of His Word. The more knowledge, the more devoted that minister is to the Word of God, the more useful he's going to be to the church. And so here, Paul is laying that principle out for us so that ministers will understand this, so that the churches will understand this, so we understand that everything we do in worship is centered around, based in, rooted in, God's inscripturated Word. His inerrant, infallible Word. And also, not only is the church devoted to these things, this is the constant, ongoing, habitual submission to Christ's instructions through the public ministry. But I think this, this again, is a, a, an indication that he's talking about every single Lord's Day. In Acts chapter uh, 20, if you want to turn to Acts 20, I want you to see this verse. It's, it's going to come up again in this sermon. Acts 20, verse 7. This is a kind of a humorous story when the young man fell asleep hearing Paul preach for a long time. As sometimes I see uh, some of my children doing in the sermon, falling asleep in the pew. But um, here we have in, in Acts 20, verse 7, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And it goes on. But I just want to, to point out that this verse here, verse, uh, uh, or chapter 20, verse 7, is, is a description of the church under the Word, even in the evenings. So we had morning and evening described in the book of Acts. This is, of course, the ancient pattern. But we just see the, the, the apostles continuing on that same pattern. So morning and evening... On the Lord's Day, the church gathers under the Word, and they're devoted to it. So, what do we do with that? Very simple, I think, just application-wise. Brothers and sisters, God wants us to love His Word. He wants to engage with you through the Scriptures, preached, taught, recited, quoted, prayed. All of these ways in which the Word comes to us. And every single Lord's Day, God is giving us unique words through this revelation that is common to all of us. He's speaking to you uniquely. He's speaking to your hearts. He's pre-planned how He will do that. And He uses these sometimes stumbling messages to do that. He uses, he uses weak, fallible men to bring His infallible word to you. So it's a marvelous thing and it's something we need to think about. And so I'll, quest, I'll ask the question of you as I ask myself, do you love the Word? Do you love to sit under it? Do you love to hear it preached? Do you love to hear it explained? Do you love to hear it applied? Do you love to hear the Word week after week? Because Christ, I'll assure you, loves to give it. And He makes every, every faithful minister enjoy, at varying degrees, to enjoy preaching His Word. It's a joy for His 
uh, servants to give it and it should be a joy for us to receive it. It is also sad for us to think about it being neglected. We should pray that it never becomes neglected in our church and pray for our, fellow, our sister churches uh, throughout the world that they would be faithful in this. So, first thing is that the ministry of the Word. It's an element that God makes essential in His service of worship. Secondly, this little phrase, and the fellowship. And the fellowship. Alright, so let's look at this one. This is what I'm going to call the common offering. The common offering. The word fellowship in the Greek, and I'll give you a Greek word here, and I don't always do this, but this is a word you might have heard before. Koinonia. You've heard of koine Greek, which is a word that means common Greek. Uh, Koinonia is a word that literally means the common things. The common things. Or what I want to say here in context is it's describing the shared common life of the church together. The sharing of or having in common of things together in the body. If you look in the context of these four, these four little phrases, the, the word, this fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers, they're all elements of worship. So this is as well. And then really the question becomes is what does this mean? What does the common things mean? Well, I think it becomes clearer when you read, uh, you go down a little bit to verse 44, you see a variant of that word koina, uh, which again means, references common things, but it's used, in the, it's used in that context, just verse 44, of generosity with respect to material goods. The common offerings then go down and become commonly, gen- commonly given gifts, commonly given generosity to the community. In need, particularly the believers in need. So what we're looking at here, I believe, and this isn't just me, but this is, a, this is a, 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 an increasingly a, a, um, increasing understanding of this verse, is that what we're looking at is particularly the giving of tithes and offerings. The common giving, the common offering of tithes and offerings to the Lord in the body of Christ. Now, I believe that this is, it even expands beyond that, but I, I don't want to push this too far. I want, I, want to, I want to just focus on what I think we can show from this text. And I think it's, what it's talking about is the sharing of common material offerings, the giving of tithes, special gifts, and so forth. We see a, a wonderful parallel to this in 1 Corinthians. If you look at 1 Corinthians 16, uh, here Paul says, Now the collection uh, for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also, that on the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. What is Paul saying there in 1 Corinthians 16? He's saying, listen, I'm going to come visit you guys, Corinthian church, and I don't want to have to go fundraising. All right? I don't, want to, I don't want to spend my time doing that. So when you come together on the first day of the week, Sunday, of course, Lord's Day gatherings, take up a collection, take up an offering and set some aside. What he goes and does with that, we see in 2 Corinthians, is he goes to the needy churches, the needy Christians, and he distributes those gifts, and he tells them who gave it. So Paul says, look, when I come to you, I don't want to go and do fundraising. When you gather for worship, set aside some of your offering for me. So I can go and take it and distribute it with the Lord's blessing. So, 
what I'm think, what, I, what I believe we're seeing here in this verse is the fellowship is the, the koinonia, the common things, are the common things that they are giving to the Lord, to the church, that the church might then use materially to prosper and bless the church in its various needs. So that ends up being things like uh, provision for a meeting space. Now, they didn't have utilities, but we have utilities. Um, caring for a pastor's family and the needs that a pastor might have. Resources for Christian education. Diaconal needs within the body. There are many other things that these uh, common gifts can be used for, but that's the point. They're just used to distribute in any way that is necessary. So here, I believe what we're seeing here is God is telling us this is another element of worship. This is a way that we worship God, which is why we actually pass a plate around. We make it part of our, of our active worship so that you can actually participate, that you put your gifts in that plate. It's collected by our good ushers who faithfully serve us week after week, and they collect these offerings. It's an act of worship to God, and it's set up here as a gift to Him. And it goes to be used in the, in the life of the body. And so, we have this common offering, which, by the way, implies in-person attendance. The Bible knows nothing of this remote, remote worship or, 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 or television worship service. The Bible knows nothing of that. The Bible calls us to gather in person. In a gathered society, a common gathering, together we give our worship to God, including our gifts and offerings. So brothers and sisters... God gives you an opportunity to worship every week by giving to Him. Are you contributing to the common offering of God's church? I don't ask you that because we need your money. I don't ask you that because we have some special project for, for more tithes. No, this is a means of grace for you. This is a spiritual benefit for you. When you give to the Lord and children, when you put your money in the plate, when you put your, your allowance, your tithes into the plate, children, this is a blessing for you. Now, we're thankful at the church for gifts and offering, for offerings. I'm certainly thankful that my, my needs are met through the church. I'm able to put food on the table for my family. But brothers and sisters, when we give to the Lord, it is a means of grace for your soul. How? Ever thought about that? Sometimes we're tempted to withhold a little bit, aren't we? We're tempted, oh, things are tight this week. I don't know if I can give to the Lord this week. That's when you ought to give the most because God is testing you. He's saying, do you trust me? So first of all, the giving of our common offering is a means of grace to help us to learn to trust Him more. To give to Him when we're actually nervous about finances. To give to Him when things are tight. Because God is saying to you, you give to me, and I'm going to give to you abundantly more. He promises that. He promises that in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. God loves a cheerful giver. And He loves to reward your faith. So it's a means of grace that you and I might grow in trusting our God by giving the tithe. We are, we are trusting Him to provide for all your needs. And by the way, here I am assuming that you all understand that the tithe is a continuing obligation. It's not just Old Testament. That's a fallacy that you'll sometimes hear. No, God continues to call us to give the, the tithe and beyond that, to be generous. 
Secondly, it's a means of grace by which you can express your gratefulness to God for Him for having provided for you already. That you say, thank you, Lord, for already showing me faithfulness. I'm happy to continue to give back in this wonderful cycle of generosity. And what we're going to see is this actually creates, it develops in us a more generous heart. Verse 44, why do you think they're going and giving their stuff away? The church starts giving their stuff away because they have already recognized that God has already been generous to me. They have learned that through the gospel. They've learned that through their worship. Because God has been so gracious, so generous to me, I don't mind giving my life away now, materially. So it's a, it's a way that we trust the Lord, grow and trust the Lord. It's a way that we express our thankfulness to Him, and it's a way that we can express our love and devotion to Christ for making us spiritually rich. I encourage you to go and read Ephesians 1, and Paul's prayer about how rich you are. How rich and spiritual riches and treasure and inheritance that you have been given in Christ. If you ever start to get in this mindset of, oh, woe is me, woe is me, my, my, you know, our bank account is running low, woe is me, I have so many bills, I'm so poor, blah, blah, blah. You... Remember how rich you are in Christ. Remember that you have the King of Kings on your side. You have the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills caring for you. Is he going to let his children beg bread? No, he's going to care for you. Trust him. And so... When we give the common offering, this is a way in which God is actually ministering to our souls and showing us how generous He is and helping us to believe that. So the early church devoted themselves to the koinonia. They devoted themselves to the common offering and their spiritual lives grew incredibly strong. This is the theme. They devoted themselves to the Word of Christ and they grew strong. They became faithful disciples, evangelists. They gave to the common offering and they grew strong in generosity. We'll see that next week. Third thing, the Lord's Supper. So we have the Word. We have the common offering. We have the Lord's Supper, which is the breaking of bread right here in the text. The, break, the breaking of bread. Now, some people find this a little bit confusing because in verse 46... We see this very same phrase used to describe what is quite clearly Christian hospitality in their homes. So they're opening their homes and breaking bread with their neighbors. But I want you to see is that this is the breaking of bread. This is a categorical difference in that it's done in the context of worship and it creates in them a desire the other six days of the week to break bread with their neighbors. All of our Christian life flows from worship. Worship is creating in us the kind of people Jesus wants us to be. He wants us to be hospitable. He wants us to be generous. He wants us to be people of the Word. Well, how does that happen? It gets developed right here. So, what they're doing here in the breaking of bread is very simple. It's, one commentator points out very clearly it's a primitive way that they describe the Lord's Supper. And again, Acts chapter 20, verse 7. If you want to go there just for another moment told you we'd go there again. Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. Well, what is that describing? It's describing eating the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day. It was a normal event for them. 
This is typical. So Luke is telling us that the people were continually devoted to the breaking of bread in the worship service. So that has some implications for us. One of which is I believe that it appears from the evidence when you put it together that the church was taking the Lord's Supper every single Sunday. So I don't think that it's a stretch to say that the apostolic example was, and I'll put it conservatively, very likely weekly communion. Now, for some Christians, that is a strange thought. Some Christians find it a little discomforting because you think, well, what would that look like if we took the Lord's Supper every week? Some of you may have come from churches where that was practiced. Some of you might have come from churches where it was practiced quarterly, like four times a year or eight times a year. Very different. So we come from different backgrounds, but you, we always want to go back to the Word of God and say, what, was, what, was, what is God prescribing for us? And it does appear that the Word of God prescribes weekly Lord's Supper. Now, some might argue, well, that, that it would become rote, wouldn't it? It would become, it would become boring and, 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 and it would be, lose all meaning. Yet, we don't make that same argument with the preaching of the Word. We don't make that same argument with prayer. We don't make that same argument with the other elements of worship, but so why do we make that with the Lord's table? So I would say to us that is not a very good argument against weekly Lord's Supper. Now here at Princeton, we have regular Lord's uh, Supper. We have twice a month. Previously, it was much more seldom. So... I think part of it is pastoral that you, you, you introduce things in a way the congregation can receive and so forth. But again, we want to go back to the Word and ask, what does the Word seem to be suggesting? It seems to be suggesting that the weekly communion would be a good, uh, a good thing. Why? Because it is a means of grace. And this is the most powerful argument in favor of a frequent table. Is that it's a way in which Jesus communes with His people. It's a way in which He communicates to us that you've been brought near to Him. There's no better, more intimate thing in the Bible, well, except for one thing, but then to sit at a table with your friend. And when, he's, when you see someone sitting at a table, He is saying, you are my friend. I love you. You are welcome with me. It is a privileged place. It is a place where your, your, your trouble, your, your barriers, your, your, your hindrances, the relational things that are between you are gone. We now sit at the table as friends. We love each other. In fact, you might say we're family now. In the Lord's table, brothers and sisters, it is a precious means of grace that should deeply humble us. God is telling us what a privileged people you and I are. That He has brought us near and He sits us at His table. He has a place at His table in His house for you. And He's saying, I love you. He's saying, I died to make this possible, to bring you near. No more intimate thing he could say to us in this context. So brothers and sisters, this has a powerful effect on our lives because when we sit at the table week after week after week, when we sit at the table and are reminded of God's love for us, it begins to affect our hearts. We become quicker to forgive our enemies. We are reminded that we have broken fellowship with Him and yet He brings us near. How can we push, how can we push that person away who offended me? You bring them near. You go to them. You ask them to forgive you. Or you seek reconciliation if they've offended you. 
brothers and sisters, you see, we are called to be a people who are forgiving, who draw near to one another. Why? Because Christ has drawn near to us. So the table, brothers and sisters, does that. It binds us in unity. Another wonderful argument for why we should have a regular celebration of the Lord's table. It knits us together as one. It's one of the most marvelous things that God has given to us to bind us together in love. So, the early church, brothers and sisters, devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And we should too. And the fourth thing that we see, the fourth element, and last, is the prayers. The prayers. Notice the plural here. It's interesting. It doesn't say the prayer or a prayer. He says the prayers. And you might wonder, well, does that have to do with the people? Or does that have to do with the variety of prayers? And I want to argue for the second. Because you see, there's more than one way to pray in the church, isn't there? We have a variety of prayers that we have already done in this worship service already. Think about this. Now, there's one thing that's missing from this list. Did you notice what it was? You might say, well, where's the singing? Singing is a way we pray. Singing goes under the umbrella of prayer. It's a means of prayer. It's set to music. So when you sing hymns, children, you sing, you know, um, Holy, 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 or Amazing Grace, or you sing one of the glorious psalms, what are you doing? You're praying to Christ. You're praying to God in the Spirit with biblical words. And so God has given us multiple different ways in which we pray. We pray spoken prayers. We pray pastoral prayers. We pray by singing. All of these are ways in which we pray. And so God has called us to pray as a church. It's one of the central elements that have to be, have to be in every worship service. So we've seen here four elements that are very um, briefly given. Each of them could be expanded upon greatly, but these are the four elements that should, should constitute, should be in use in every Christian worship service. Why? Because Christ has ordained them. He hasn't ordained skits. Now we love skits. They're fun. They're humorous. Use them at another time. But when we gather for holy worship, God did not ordain skits. God did not ordain movie clips. God did not ordain uh, liturgical dance. God did not ordain many other things which are often used in the context of worship services. He's ordained these elements and these alone. Why? Because these are the means by which He wants to get at your heart. So these are a spiritual discipline. We believe that God blesses these means of grace. Not formalistically, not just by automatically doing them. You say, oh, well, pastor, I go to church every Sunday, morning and evening, and I do all these things week after week. I should be blessed. But I'm not. These aren't automatic. You see, we engage in faith. We engage Christ by faith. So all of these are are relational. These are ways in which God wants to relate to us and we to Him and, and to be united and commune with Him through these means. So it's not the use of these means automatically brings blessing. It's through, through the means we engage with Jesus who blesses us and who saves us. And He works in our lives. So, brothers and sisters, as we think about these things, just very briefly, three thoughts and we'll close. One, God or, God's ordained liturgy gives the church clear direction on what a Christian worship service should entail. 
So if you have friends, if you have uh, brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ from different uh, persuasions, different denominations, different, different understandings, this is a verse that can help you communicate why it is that we do what we do. Not to judge, not to look down on anyone else, but to, to teach and to disciple and inform and get other Christians thinking about what should my worship service look like? When you know other Christians from other communions, these questions come up, these thoughts come up. We're tempted to pride sometimes by looking down. We ought not do that. There but for the grace of God go we. We ought to use opportunities like that to, to instruct, to encourage, and to help people think more biblically about the most important thing we do. And we need to be those who are, in our own hearts, understanding that just because we, we strive for doing things correctly doesn't mean that our hearts are always correct. And so we want to strive and ask Christ to have our hearts humble and, and malleable and receptive to Jesus when we worship. Secondly, God's ordained liturgy gives the church precious means of grace by which we may continually commune with our Savior. Again, he has not ordained all these other things. He's ordained these four elements. And they are precious. Now you might go, oh, well, man, I've I've seen this all my life. I've done this all my life. And may you do these things all your life until you go to be with Christ. May this be the, the heartbeat of your week. May this be the center. May this be the hub of the wheel for your week. That everything that you do throughout your week is informed by, encouraged by, and strengthened by these simple yet profoundly deep elements by which Christ communes with you. He loves these things. We should love them. They are His way to worship. And we worship in spirit and truth in Christ. And thirdly, brothers and sisters, God's ordained liturgy gives the church a blueprint, not only for how we should worship, but for how the rest of our lives should look. All the other six days that we go outside these four walls. You see, we're going to see this next week more in depth. But this is the pattern of Christian life. That we're to be a people who are of the Word. Because we are saturated with the Word every Lord's Day, morning and evening. Then we are the people who go out with the Word. We are people that are seeking to day by day make disciples wherever you go. Just as they were doing in the temple. We will be a people who are going to be more generous. We are the people who are... Uh, giving of the common offering and being transformed by that, then we go out with a generous mindset of giving our lives away. And He wants to make us a hospitable people. People who have received the hospitality of Jesus Christ, have received the love and the fellowship of Jesus Christ through His blood and through His forgiveness, then we are those who go out and forgive others. And we are hospitable even to strangers, even to those who hate our God. And fourthly, God's ordained liturgy makes us a people who are a people of prayer. Because we devote ourselves to prayer on the Lord's Day. We, that spills over and informs and helps, encourages our prayer life throughout the week. Which, let's be honest, we can use that help. Prayer is something that doesn't come natural to us. It's hard for us. It's a discipline. It's, a, it's work. And so Christ is helping us to pray by putting us in a context where we are praying regularly. And He's praying through us and with us so that we will be a people who pray and are people of praise and a people who are known as worshipers of God. So brothers and sisters, this is a rich, rich verse for us. It helps us to see why we do what we do. 
and hopefully, and hopefully that we can continue this um, discussion next week and see the effects that these elements should have in our lives. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful verse, this sweet list of elements that you have ordained for your worship. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand them better and to use them rightly. And God, we are thankful for your means of grace, which helps us to commune with your Son. God, we love you and again, ask your blessing on this word preached in Christ's name. Amen.